There comes a point when the right to vote requires a fight to vote. MSNBC Films presents Battleground Georgia, a story that explores the ugly history of voter suppression and how Georgia is leading the charge against it. Something has to change. The old South is being replaced by the new South. Battleground Georgia, part of the Turning Point documentary series from executive producer Trevor Noah. Sunday, May 19th at 9 p.m. Eastern on MSNBC. Good evening to you at home, everybody. I'm Tiffany Cross, in for Joy Reid, and we begin the readout tonight just hours away from the first hearing of the House Select Committee to investigate the January 6th attack, where, according to committee member Adam Schiff, there will be video the public hasn't yet seen. We'll hear from four members of the Capitol Police who will detail the trauma they experienced when a mob of Trump supporters, some even carrying flags supporting the police, stormed their way into the Capitol. Now, here's some of what we'll likely hear tomorrow from the officers who will be testifying. For some people, January 6th just happened one day. For me, for those all responding officer, is nonstop. While the fight was happening, I didn't process it while it was happening. So once you, it's all over and you're attempting to put together in your mind what happened. I got pinned to the doorway. They, uh, they ripped my mask off, stole my equipment, beat me up, sprayed me with everything. I do grapple with, uh, with PTSD as a result of, uh, of that day. It really, it like cannibalizes you. It just eats you alive. Now, according to Capitol Police, 140 officers were injured during the insurrection, the irony of the Blue Lives Matter crowd. And the DOJ says that more than 165 individuals have been charged with assaulting or impeding law enforcement. In a statement announcing tomorrow's hearing, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi said that, quote, we have the duty to the Constitution and the country to find the truth of the January 6th insurrection and to ensure that such an assault on our democracy cannot happen again. Now, this weekend, Speaker Pelosi announced that Illinois Republican Adam Kinzinger would join the select committee. Now, Kinzinger, you will remember, voted to impeach Trump earlier this year and is the second Republican on the committee alongside Congresswoman Liz Cheney. Now, this came after Republican Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy pulled all of his picks from the committee after Pelosi rejected Congressman Jim Banks and Jim Jordan, who both refused to certify the election. In a statement, Kinzinger said, I'm a Republican dedicated to conservative values, but I swore an oath to uphold and defend the Constitution. And while this is not the position I expect to be in or sought out when duty calls, I will always answer. Now, here's how McCarthy reacted to that today. Some Republicans have been saying that the, G- the GOP should play ball on this committee. You really? Could, you could get Who the three. That? Who is that? Adam and Liz? Well, well, aren't they kind of like Pelosi Republicans? Pelosi Republicans. Now, Liz Cheney, who will give opening remarks tomorrow after Democratic Committee Chair Benny Thompson, she had this response. Look, uh, we're about this very serious business here. We have uh, important work to do, uh, and I think that's pretty childish. All right, let's get into it. Joining me now is Congressman Pete Aguilar of California. He is a member of the committee we've been talking about, the Select Committee to Investigate January 6th. Christina Greer, Associate Professor of Political Science at Fordham University, and Olivia Troy. She was a former uh, senior aide to the White House Coronavirus Task Force and director of the Republican Accountability Project. Uh, Congressman Aguilar, very happy to have you join the program tonight, ahead of a big day that you have tomorrow. Um, Look, I know we're going to hear from the police officers tomorrow. I think everybody's very eager uh, 
uh, to hear the testimony of some of the folks that the committee will call. So aside from the police officers, who is on your list of people we'll hear from? Well, tomorrow is about those police officers that you mentioned. And so that's what we're going to do first. Um, that's going to lay uh, the groundwork and, and set the frame for the conversation that we're going to have about the January 6th commission. Um, but it is so important that the public gets to hear directly from these four officers who were the last line of defense protecting our democracy, protecting this Capitol building, um, and, and protecting us from all these insurrectionists. And so it's going to be important to hear them out uh, we want to hear their stories. We want them to share their perspectives. Um, there'll be plenty of time for us to get to the next steps. Uh, but right now, it's about these four officers and, and, and their experiences and what they went through on January 6th and continue to deal with. Well, I want to stick with you for a second because um, we'll all be riveted, I'm sure, by their testimony. We'll certainly be talking about it tomorrow here on The Readout. Um, but I am curious, uh, for the when you subpoena other people, how exactly will you enforce subpoenas? Because once the police officers testify, uh, there's a lot of leftover questions. You know, Don, Don Jr. spoke at that rally. Kim Guilfoyle spoke at that rally. Donald Trump himself, the conversation with Kevin McCarthy. Um, so for the people that you testify, if you don't want to share that information, now, how will you ensure that they show up to testify before this committee? Well, there are tools that the committee has in our, in our tool belt. Uh, we hope it doesn't come to that, but we will be prepared to exhaust every possible scenario in order to compel people uh, to share what happened. Our goal, our charge, our mission is to tell the story about January 6th, what led up to the 6th, uh, who funded it, um, and how we make sure that this never happens again. And so we're going to exhaust every avenue available. Um, and if that uh, means um, using the courts to enforce things, then, then we will. Um, but we hope it doesn't come to that. Um, but there are tools that the committee has in our tool belt. I'll follow the lead of our chairman um, and make sure that we are uh, exercising every possible way uh, that we can compel people uh, to come before us. All right. Well, it's a Don McGahn. Uh, two years of battle, uh, court battles to finally testify. So uh, hopefully it won't take that long. Christina, let me turn to you here, because one thing that I think has been a lot a bit frustrating uh, with the American public is why exactly does this committee have to be so bipartisan? You know, it's like if you were prosecuting uh, Dave Koresh, you're not ever thinking, oh, we should get the Branch Davidians on the committee, too. So to get their perspective, um, what do you think the intention uh, of having a bipartisan committee is? Well, Tiffany, I mean, the, the intent should be that all Americans should feel concerned and disgusted and uh, just aggrieved by what happened on January 6th. Sadly, uh, it's primarily Democrats who view the insurrectionists and what happened on January 6th as a real assault, not just on the Capitol, but on American democracy writ large. Uh, Republicans have yet to, most have yet to fully acknowledge it. We know they've backtracked and have tried to rewrite history to say it's just a few tourists who got turned around. Oh, it's a march that was, you know, just a, a little bit unsavory, but it wasn't that big of a deal. And we've seen not just the deaths, but obviously the aftermath uh, for police officers to say nothing of the staff that were that was in that building, uh, especially people of color and immigrants who, you know, knew that they were uh, definitely in, in such a dangerous position. So it really has to be Democrats pushing their Republican colleagues to acknowledge the truth and facts. I mean, this idea that uh, we're even divided as to what happened on January 6th when we see it with our own eyes is really something where I think that's the impetus behind Nancy Pelosi to say, if this affected the, the entire American populace, 
we need to have both parties at the table. But we see the reticence of Republicans to even acknowledge what happened on that day that is so well documented in so many different ways. It's so well documented. And we said in the open, Olivia, that there's going to be footage that we still have not seen after all the new footage that that has come out. I mean, is this really a political win for Kevin McCarthy? I mean, there has to be some level of sensible Republicans who see with their own eyes and ears what happened and they hear Republicans right before them try to rewrite history and say, don't believe your lying eyes. This didn't happen. Is this going to work? Well, I don't think it's a political win, but what it does do, it is going to give them the opportunity to create more disinformation is what I fear. And they will spin this and they'll do their own charades on the side. And I think that's partially why it's so important to have Republicans sitting on the committee, because you can't call this uh, nonpartisan right now. I mean, look, they tried. We tried that route. They tried that route. Congress tried that route. They tried to do a bipartisan commission. And uh, they, they voted, all these people voted against it. So it's important that the truth come out tomorrow morning, I think will be an emotionally very raw hearing, but I think Americans, the average American citizen needs to hear it from these officers. Let's remember the Republican party touted the blue lives matter movement, right? And so blue lives matter. And we're going to hear about these courageous officers, what they faced, what they saw, and that truth needs to be on the record. So, Olivia, I want to stick with you here because you left uh, the Trump White House in August 2020. Now, the White House records from November to uh, November 3rd to January 20th have yet to be subpoenaed because you were there so close to that time. What might those White House records reveal? Well, I think you need to look back on what happened last summer. I think you need to look at the lead up. I think that those records will show what happened in the dereliction of duty across the cabinet. Where were people at the time? What was communicated? What wasn't? And what really happened in the Oval Office? Who was in the Oval Office? Who was communicating? And who actually expressed concerns and raised these concerns? Because those are the people that really need to come forward and really state the facts so that we don't allow this to happen again in futures. You know, we have upcoming elections. I have no doubt that we will see more attacks on our democracy at state capitals or even on the Hill. I hope not. But this hearing, this committee... All of these investigations and these facts will help us prevent that in the future. That's why this is so critical. This investigation matters so much. Yeah. Well, so my last question to you, Olivia, is um, you were an aide to Mike Pence, and I'm very careful not to completely sanitize him here because he did stand by Trump during a lot of horrific things. But because you worked for him and know him, uh, do you think that he will be cooperative with this committee? If should he be subpoenaed, will he show up and testify? I would hope that he would. And I would hope that he would tell the truth because he himself lived it firsthand. His life yeah. was threatened, the life of his family. And look, I hope his chief of staff comes forward. But I will be very honest about this. I lived one of the impeachments firsthand inside the White House. And I know what they're capable of. And I just hope that in this situation, in terms of national security and our democracy being at stake, that the truth will prevail and people will do the right thing. It's the right thing for the country, Republican, Democrat whatever party you are. Congressman Aguilar, what are we going to hear tomorrow that we have not heard before? Well, you're going to hear these officers in their own words, um, and you're going to hear them um, not in just a soundbite, not in 30 seconds. Uh, they're going to have some time uh, to answer the, the questions, um, but to also give their own a testimony. They submitted written testimony so far. 
And I think it's going to be incredibly compelling. And I think you can also expect uh, to see some videos and some still images as well um, as members question uh, these officers um, about their experiences. And I think, I, I think it will be um, important. I think it'll be emotional. Um, and I think it's going to be an important process um, as a building block uh, to our further conversations about what happened on January 6th. Chrissy, this is one thing that I'm very concerned about. Um, you know, we saw what happened on January 6th. And my question that I think will likely live in perpetuity at this point is, will this wing of the party, the Republican Party, the MAGA sycophants, will they ever accept election results that they don't like? We have midterms coming up. So let's say by a miracle, the Democrats keep the House and the Senate. Well, do we have to worry about another insurrection then? Trump may disappear. Trumpism is here. Do we have to worry about violence at state legislatures? I mean, what does that look like from, from now and until this political violence that we've seen? I think we do, Tiffany. I mean, we can't forget, you know, the life of Gretchen Whitmer, uh, the the governor of yeah. Michigan. I mean, we saw that there was a, a, an entire plot, not just to kidnap her, but Democrats in the state house in the, in the state of Michigan. You know, I think one of the most insidious and dangerous things that Donald Trump has done is to call into question truth and facts. So that type of ethos has lasted long after his presidency, and I, and I fear that it will. You have one third of, say, uh, the Republican Party that, that are the, the MAGAites, but sadly, the other two thirds uh, go along with what the MAGAites uh, say. And so right. to me, that's just as bad. If, if you have a sort of jello spined Republicans who refuse to stand up and do what is right, as Olivia has mentioned, then they might as well wear the red hats and, and, uh, and essentially stand with the insurrectionists if they're not going to stand up and do what's right for this country. So that is a great concern, Tiffany, because we know that in 2022 we'll have contentious elections. We know that we've got governorships. We know that we've got one third of the Senate. We've got the entire House coming up for uh, for re-election. And if Republicans aren't happy with the results, then they just say that it's false. That's a very uh, Donald Trumpian claim that the Republicans have embraced. And Democrats, quite honestly, haven't been firm enough in passing voting rights legislation and protections not just on the federal level, but in state houses all across the country to make sure that we are all protected. This isn't just about protecting Democrats to make sure Democrats can stay into office. This is about protecting all Americans so that they have an equal rights at the ballot. We saw this in Georgia in 2018 when Brian Kemp did whatever his shenanigans yeah. were in the Republican primary. And we saw Republicans realizing that this was not fair. But then it ended up working out in their favor when Brian Kemp essentially stole the election from Stacey Abrams. We cannot have that as far as our democracy not just domestically, but internationally as well, that weakens us. Right, globally. Like, how does this look? Um, Congressman Aguilar, I, I ask all members I interview this question, and I'm curious your perspective here. I know you're on the committee, so it's a, a tough question to uh, answer before the hearings kick off. We've seen some of members of Congress fraternize with some of the insurrectionists. You work uh, at, at the crime scene, essentially. Do you feel safe working on Capitol Hill? And do you suspect that some of your colleagues may have intentionally or unintentionally aided these insurrectionists? Well, I know that there are Capitol Police officers who are protecting us day in and day out, just like the four who are going to testify, the two Capitol Police officers and two Metro D.C. police officers who will testify uh, tomorrow. 
Um, but member safety is something that is incredibly real. And, and it's something that we think about very often um, here. And, you know, I don't know um, what my colleagues and what some of them uh, who they talked to. We saw, um, you know, one of uh, these members, uh, Mr. Banks, traveled to the border with someone who was, you know, here uh, on the Capitol grounds on January 6th. Uh, I mean, that's ridiculous. And so, um, you know, I, I think that I think that members continue to have issues. Um, and I think that uh, that's something that hopefully this committee uh, will get to the bottom of. But um, if members uh, uh, have nothing to hide, uh, then they should be fine and, and they should be willing to share their perspectives. Um, but my suspicion is that some of them may not be as forthcoming as they should be. All right. Well, we will certainly be tuned in tomorrow. We'll have that coverage uh, live and we'll also be talking about it tomorrow night on the uh, readout. So thank you so much, Congressman Pete Aguilar, Christina Greer and Olivia Troy. And up next on the readout, for the first time, a federal agency issues a vaccine mandate as Republicans belatedly try to undo the vaccine intolerance that they themselves are responsible for. And is it time to mask up again? I think that question may have already been answered. Plus, the passing of civil rights leader and educator Bob Moses and what we can learn from the voting rights battles he fought decades ago. The readout continues right after this. Today and every day, Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Lawmakers who oppose abortion are attacking Planned Parenthood, which means affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. The right to control our bodies and get the health care we need has been stolen from us. And now, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills that would block people from getting the sexual and reproductive care they need. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves health care. It's a human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies and against policies that interfere with decisions between patients and their doctor. Planned Parenthood needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, we can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future. That's PlannedParenthood.org future. All right, the pandemic is spiraling out of control yet again, with hospital beds filling up, some of the sick even turned away, and those devastating stories of loss and so much death are back. And still, none of this seems to be swaying the millions who refuse to get vaccinated or even wear a mask, which is why some state governments and agencies are stepping up the mandates. Today, California announced it will require all state employees and healthcare workers to be vaccinated or face regular frequent testing. That's almost 250,000 employees. And the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs will require its 115,000 frontline healthcare workers to take the jab, making it the first federal agency to mandate that employees be inoculated. Elected Republicans who have sowed vaccine hostility for political gain are fighting these mask mandates or ignoring the problem altogether. Florida now accounts for 20 percent of all cases in the U.S., but its governor, Florida man Ron DeSantis, is more focused on his presidential ambitions rather than addressing the catastrophe at home. One of the many reasons Democratic Congressman Charlie Crist is now running for governor of Florida. He joins me now, along with 
health physician, Dr. Chris Purnell. So happy to have you both here. And Congressman, I've got to start with you. This news about the VA uh, mandating uh, vaccines is quite striking. I mean, it's very interesting to see a federal agency take this stand. Should more federal agencies or even state and local uh, government agencies make it a mandate? And do you think we'll see more of that? I do think there'll be more of that, and and I think it probably is appropriate. Uh, As we always say, you need to rely upon the experts, like the gentleman I'm on with today, with you. Uh, But physicians, healthcare workers, they should be the ones that make these kinds of calls. But as it continues to increase, particularly in my Florida, you know, we're we're leading the nation in this outbreak right now with the Delta variant. It's heartbreaking. And and sadly, the governor is playing Russian roulette with this issue. Uh, And in the meantime, he's going to Texas and campaigning for president. He goes to Aspen and Pennsylvania and all around the country. The job of being the governor of Florida is an important job. I used to have it. And it matters. And it makes a difference in people's lives. And if he would simply advocate for people to wear uh, masks and, and get the vaccine, uh, he can have a, a major impact in making Florida healthier. Because in the meantime, my fellow Floridians, many of them, sadly, are losing their life. I mean, it's striking that all these cases are coming out of Florida. Dr. Purnell, uh, let me just say the congressman's on Capitol Hill, so he can't see you. Um, but I'm curious for, from you, um, over 4 million people have died from COVID. How many people have died from taking the vaccine? Well, over 610,000 approximately have died from COVID. Over 34 million have had cases. Those who have died from the vaccine, that would be a number that we would need to drill down on specifically, Tiffany. And I want to say this and make it very clear. We don't have any evidence that there are direct links between the COVID-19 vaccines and death. We have people who have died who have also been vaccinated, and that's being investigated. That's being analyzed. We're looking to see if there is a causation, or meaning causality, or there's just a correlation. Bottom line, these vaccines are safe. Bottom line, these vaccines are effective. And politicians, unfortunately, are manipulating and playing on the fears of the public and really are fueling disinformation and misinformation. And that really has to stop. Right. And over four million have died worldwide, over 600,000 right here in the United States. Um, Let me ask you a a quick question, Dr. Purnell. This Delta variant uh, in Florida, I'm really curious because from your medical expertise, this is me talking as a layperson. um, I would think in Florida, the weather's warmer. People are outside more, which allegedly that has a lower uh, transfusion rate. Why is it so rampant in Florida? I think it's rampant in Florida because politics has gotten in the way of science and politics has gotten in the way of art or truth and data. And what do I mean by that? We don't politicize wearing a seatbelt. We don't politicize wearing a helmet when we're bicycling. We don't politicize the need to have childhood immunizations in order to go to school. But we have politicized mask wearing. We have politicized getting a vaccine. And those are things that we know are bread and butter staples in preventive medicine. But we do have politicians who are standing up. We do have those saying, look, we need to stop with the Russian roulette, as the congressman just said. Think about Senator Menendez and Senator Collins and the bill that they have before um, both houses in Congress looking to establish a 9-11 South Commission to look at what happened during this COVID-19 response and to help paint a blueprint for how we should respond to public health emergencies. We need to see more of that. 
Yeah, you make raise an interesting point. People weren't saying, I, I refuse to get this polio vaccine or I don't want that tuberculosis vaccine. I mean, it's very weird to see this become a political debate. Um, Congressman, I want you to listen to Missouri's Attorney General Eric Schmidt. Uh, he was on Fox News today, and I'll get your reaction on the other side. You have raging violent crime, and their solution for public safety is defunding the police and requiring masks for those who are vaccinated and kids. It's a complete failure. It's about control, and people have had enough, and I'm going to stick up for the people in my state who've had enough, and that's why we're going to file a lawsuit today. This is insane. I mean, even if you want to follow this crazy, alleged, they're trying to control me mentality, at some point, doesn't self preservation kick in? Don't you want to live? Don't you want your children to live? How do you explain this kind of ridiculous outlook? Uh, I can't. That's inexplicable. Um, to say that, you know, people want control and that's why they're advising, you know, people to wear a mask or get a vaccine is the, one of the most absurd things. People want to try to help people save their life. That's what's going on. It's like Dr. Fauci says, you know, one of the most basic things we can do, just get the vaccine, wear a mask when you're in public. And I think the reason it's spiking in Florida, in addition to not having good leadership from our governor and he's out gallivanting around the country, is the fact that it is warm. Uh, I agree with the doctor. So a lot of people are inside in air conditioning. Uh, that's why Florida kind of boomed. We got rid of mosquitoes mm. and we got rid of hot, you know, temperatures. But the real point here is that we have a governor that's not leading. And it breaks right. my heart to say that. But he, all he needs to do is stand up and say, listen, maybe my party doesn't like me saying that you ought to wear a mask or you ought to get vaccine. But as the governor of the state of Florida, I'm telling you, you need to do it to save your life. That would be the right thing to do. He needs to have the moral courage to do it. Well, he has kind of said get the vaccine, but it's a mixed message, right? Because he's also uh, promised to use his power uh, to uh, invalidate local emergency measures. He sued the CDC, um, trying to prevent them from having cruise lines require uh, passengers to be vaccinated. He stepped up his personal animosity towards Dr. Fauci for some reason. I mean, who is the counter voice to him? I understand that you're running for governor and you have a platform as well, but who are the community validators saying, yeah, this guy is nuts and you guys need to get vaccinated. Any healthcare expert in the, in the state of Florida is saying that, you know, and I'm saying that. So I guess I'm the counter voice right now with you, Tiffany. Uh, and it's sad that that has to occur. Uh, when I was governor, I understood, you know, that working uh, across uh, the aisle, uh, working for the betterment of the people, you know, when you get elected governor as a Republican or a Democrat, you don't get elected the governor of the Republicans of Florida. You don't get elected the governor of the Democrats of Florida. You get elected governor of the people of Florida. And you're supposed to work for them all. And if it's a little counter to his politics to tell people that wearing a mask is a good idea or being vaccinated is really life saving, uh, then maybe he should get out of politics and get into another profession because what he's doing is wrong and it's costing lives. Yeah, his out, uh, ambition is outpacing his uh, good sense, I'd imagine. Thank you so much, uh, Congressman Charlie Chris, for being here. And of course, as always, Dr. Chris Purnell. And don't go anywhere at home because still ahead, a handful of grifters are earning big bucks by spreading vaccine misinformation that is straight up killing people. I mean, honestly, how can this even be legal? Stay with us. Hi, I'm Jonathan Capehart, and I'm excited to share some great news. Both The Saturday Show and The Sunday Show are available as a podcast. 
Every weekend, I look forward to bringing you the most important political news and the newsmakers who are creating policies that affect your life. For me, it's all about the conversation. That's when news is revealed and understanding begins. Search for Saturdays and Sundays with Jonathan Capehart and follow. All right, with the country now facing a pandemic of the unvaccinated, health officials in areas where COVID is surging are also contending with the underlying cause. The top public health official in northwestern Louisiana, Dr. Martha White, told the New York Times they are stuck. The Times notes that facing deep mistrust stoked by conservative news outlets and lawmakers and by rampant misinformation online, local health officials like Dr. White are fighting for influence. The Biden administration has pointed the finger at tech companies for enabling vaccine disinformation online. And the Times reports one source, Florida osteopathic doctor Joseph Mercola, the most influential spreader of misinformation. Now, this guy has published more than 600 articles on Facebook casting doubt on the vaccines. And his audience is substantial. He has 2.7 million combined followers on his English and Spanish language pages. He's at the top of a very short list of just 12 people, the disinformation dozen as they are known, that produces 65% of anti-vaccine information on social, social media. I'm joined now by Mayor Adrian Perkins of Shreveport, Louisiana, and Ben Collins, NBC News, uh, NBC News senior uh, reporter. Ben, I, I got to start with you here. This is so insane that this kind of rampant disinformation is having this big of an impact. And I have to tell you, I am not excluded from it. It reaches my text chats. It reaches my DMs. It reaches my uh, email inbox. I'm curious, since you've been following this, is there one specific platform that traffics in more disinformation than the other? Or is this stuff spreading like wildfire? It's different kinds of platforms. So on Telegram, that's where it's sort of unregulated. It's the Wild West there. And with Telegram, uh, people operate without code words or anything like that on Facebook. They have to sort of like get through the censors to talk about uh, anti-vaccine information. But on Telegram, it's a Wild West. And they use that sort of as an ammo dump to go to Facebook to try to convince what they call normies, uh, normal people, to not take the vaccine. Uh, and what you see with that disinformation dozen is you see a lot of people who are reputation laundering. They're taking, uh, you know, they have a doctor title in front of their name. And a lot of people say, hey, look, look at this paper from this doctor. This doctor says, don't take the vaccine. It's not safe. Now, you know, there's a lot of reasons why that guy behaves that way. Um, but, you know, that's, that's the big thing they do is they share around uh, these like edge cases and these uh, extreme uh, like, you know, far away blogs onto Facebook and Telegram. And that's how it gets pushed out to regular people in real life. Which is so scary. I mean, the virus is not killing us as fast as ignorance, right? Um, Mr. Mayor, let me ask you, because look, I think there are two different buckets of people, right? You have uh, some, uh, I would call them the MAGA crowd, who I always try to make this point, they've never known actual oppression. So they assume things like mask mandates are oppression. And then you have a different bucket of people. You have people of color who are very distrustful of government and the healthcare industry for reasons that are deeply rooted in historical facts and data. Um, I think these two groups of people need different messaging and different messengers. In your area of Louisiana, do you have an equal amount of these people who are both, quite frankly, a danger at this point? And how do you message to those very different groups? 
Tiffany, you're you're absolutely right. That's what the city of Shreveport, we're primarily composed of uh, very conservative Republicans. Uh, so you have those political winds pushing against us. And then we have a majority population of African-Americans as well. And we know the historical, um, you know, faults and, and mistrust with African-Americans in our public health system. So we have been fighting that from day one here. And that's the reason why we find ourselves as one of the lowest vaccination places in the country right now. And the way that we kind of beat back against that is really what we're seeing at this point is very incrementally and with relationships. I mean, talking to our family members, talking to the people that at, that are at our churches and using our personal relationships, the relationships that we've, you know, uh, catered for a lifetime to really, that's what it takes to overcome all the misinformation that's out there that's literally killing people in my community. Uh, literally. And look, I have people in my family who were distrustful, but I have to say a lot of people have since uh, come around. So it's very scary. Um, ben, I'm curious why these platforms aren't kicking folks off like this doctor we talked about in the open. How is it that he's allowed to stay on the platform? I mean, Donald Trump finally got kicked off when they see people with this huge reach spreading disinformation. How are they allowed to persist? Specifically with the anti-vax community, they've been at this for years, skirting bans and making themselves look as presentable as possible. They know the rules better than anybody else. They know the rules better than the people applying the rules at Facebook. That's why uh, with, you know, most normal people, they have to change like, you know, last week we reported on uh, on a bunch of groups that changed their name from anti-vaccine groups to dance party and changed the name vaccine to dance when they when they're talking about it on Facebook to skirt those bans. You know, people who've been in the anti-vaccine community have been up to this for decades. Uh, when COVID came along, that was a godsend to them. That was that was the best thing that could happen to them because it gave them a thing that everyone had to confront. Everyone had to get a vaccine or not. It was a decision for every single person. So when all of that happened, we were all locked down. People were locked down reading Instagram, reading YouTube, and they got a much larger audience than they've ever had before. I think that's part of the problem, right? A lot of these social media campaigns have democratized who's a reputable voice and someone can call themselves a journalist, but that doesn't necessarily mean they are. And they present that way, which is, you know, quite scary. Um, I'm curious for you, Mr. Mayor, when uh, folks in your community consume news, when are they looking at the local news? Are they reading national papers? Um, where, like, who are the trusted resources other than community members where folks are getting their information from about COVID? You know, honestly, I have to commend our local news stations here for doing a pretty good job and not spreading misinformation. There's a few radio stations that has dabbled with it, but primarily it's from social media. Uh, we're getting bombarded on all social media platforms with that misinformation and it just tumbles out of control and it plays out in the rooms that we were in, that we are in. Just last week, we were at a city council meeting and we had a citizen stand up and talk, use her three minutes at city council to just spread all misinformation. And luckily we had Dr. White, who's over this region for the Louisiana Department of Health in the audience to stand up afterwards and correct a lot of the misinformation she put out. But it's primarily coming from social media platforms, but it's having a damaging impact nonetheless. A, a, a fatally damaging impact. And for the folks watching at home, please share responsibly. If you have questions about something, go to the CDC website, ask a trusted medical physician, your doctor, because uh, what you see on social media is not always accurate. So thank you both. Thank you, Shreveport Mayor Adrian Perkins and Ben Collins uh, for adding some truth to this conversation. And still ahead, we honor the life of Bob Moses, a pioneer of the civil rights movement. This happens as Republicans systematically try to undo his legacy. The readout continues right after this.
As you guys have seen, Democratic activists are raising the alarm about the impact of a raft of voter suppression laws on future elections in battleground states and really everywhere. The CEO of the Stacey Abrams-founded New Georgia Project told Politico that if there isn't a way for us to repeat what happened in November 2020, we're the F-word. So Republican-controlled states are passing laws making day of voting, early voting, and absentee voting harder. In my neck of the woods, Georgia Republican lawmakers can now intervene in local elections if they don't like the results. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution is reporting that Republican legislators have already started building the case against Fulton County elections officials. Now, the goal, of course, is stripping them of their duties in future elections. Why? Because Fulton County has a large number of black, brown and Asian-American voters. Fighting that kind of voter suppression was a major part of Bob Moses's life. Moses died Sunday at the age of 86. In 1960, Moses left his job as a high school teacher at a private school in the Bronx to help organize poor, illiterate, and rural black residents in Mississippi. He later became the Mississippi field director of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, or SNCC, as you guys know. His work registering voters in the South was central to the 1964 Freedom Summer. Sadly, today's voting rights activists are still having to fight this same fight. For more, I'm joined by none other than Reverend Al Sharpton, my big brother, president of the National Action Network and host of Politics Nation on MSNBC. Rev, I'm so happy to have you with me tonight, and I couldn't think of anybody better to have this conversation with. Um, you've been fighting this fight for decades. You've been in this battle for a long time, so I recognize that we don't have a right to feel tired. But for those of us who do feel tired, what are your words and thoughts on this entire situation tonight? My words are that if we are tired, we have to fight even through our weariness. When you look at Bob Moses, John Lewis, and others that fought despite being weary, they were able to change this society and transform the body politic to the degree that we were able to secure a black president, 60 blacks in Congress today that are now under existential threat the whole democracy under threat. And that is why we're mobilizing all over the country. We're having a national march on voting rights on August 28th, uh, the 66th anniversary of Emmett Till's death, the 58th anniversary of the I Have a Dream speech by Dr. King, Martin Luther King III, Andre King, myself and others are working with SEIU for that march. And Wednesday, we are going to the Hill and meet with some of the senators, Senator, um, uh, Senator, uh, Graham and, and Senator Manchin, as well as Speaker Pelosi. And we're going to the Martin Luther King Monument with some of those uh, Texas legislators that are in Washington because they want to make sure Texas doesn't get a quorum to continue these uh, battles uh, that they're waging to suppress our vote. So we can't stop. We must, in many ways, pick up that baton and keep fighting. Yes, we're tired. But as Fannie Lou Hamer said, I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired. So I'm going to keep fighting. 
Absolutely. And look, let me let me just give our viewers some background on what Bob Moses went through as a voting rights activist. Um, when he was organizing in Mississippi, a sheriff's cousin bashed him in the head uh, with a knife handle. But bleeding, this man kept going, uh, staggering up the steps of a courthouse to continue to register black voters. Um, he was riding in a car with someone and the Klan shot through the window. He had to cradle the driver while the car was still moving just to get it on the right road. So, Rev, I have to ask you, when we see violence like that, and then we see in some of these red states that they're giving partisan poll watchers increased power in open carry states. Could we see this level of violence again? One. And two, do you think Senators Manchin and Cinema and the White House, who thinks black voters can just out-organize this kind of voter suppression, do you think they realize that that is the fear we carry with us, that is the strength we carry with us, and that's the passion that we use to fight these kind of uh, these draconian tactics? Well, I don't know what they realize, but I know what we realize, and that is that we must have that passion. We must have that determination. Do I am I concerned about violence could happen against us? Yes. Some of us have had violence. I've been in in marches where I was stabbed, but we kept going. And I think that what we must do is we must glean from those that laid the path like Bob Moses that suffered violence. One of the great honors of me having Politics Nation here on MSNBC was Bob Moses came on the show and talked about some of that as well as his algebra project. And knowing John Lewis and having him on and talking and marching with him, we in many ways make mockery of their sacrifice if we let these new Jim Crow type laws go into effect to, in many ways, suppress and eliminate our vote. And it's not only our vote, it's a threat to democracy, period. Everyone watching us is under threat. If they can get away with it in majority black and brown districts, they will do it to anyone that opposes their draconian attempts to reverse the democratic process in this country. Absolutely. And that's the thing. I think people have to realize voting rights is just the first step. Then comes the policy they'll ram through. This is when they revoke uh, abortion rights. They roll back some of the criminal justice reforms that we've seen. So it's very scary. Um, You talked about Emmett Till. And I just, you know, he would have turned 80 uh, this weekend. And just to put it in context, President Joe Biden is 79. So this shows that this history was not that distant. Um, You know, grown men snatched this teenage boy out of his house and beat him Uh, mutilated him, shot him in the head and threw him uh, in a river. And it's almost hard to believe, except when you think about Samir Rice and Trayvon Martin and Ronald Green and Dante Wright and Stefan Clark and on and on and on we can go. Um, The one thing that I found interesting, Rev, is that the woman who made these accusations, uh, Carolyn Bryant Donham, admitted later that she she lied. So when you still think about the bird watcher, Amy Cooper, the Victoria's Secrets, Karen, you know, seeing this, what, what's your thought on how we navigate this history that keeps repeating itself? We must keep bringing it up. We must raise it up. Mamie Till Mobley, the mother of, uh, of Emmett Till, opened his casket so the world would see what they did to her son. And that energized a civil rights movement in the 50s. I was just one years old when it happened, but I grew up hearing from my mother the story of Emmett Till. I wasn't old enough to protest, but I was old enough by the time we got to Howard Beach and certainly old enough when we got to Trayvon Martin and some of the things that I've been involved in, including George Floyd. So we've seen a litany of pain, but we have had power over pain. We are survivors, and that is why we're going to make sure we secure our voting rights so we put people in power 
that will take care of upholding the principles of right. what is right and righteous. Well, Reverend Charlton, you don't get thanked enough for the work that you do for the community. And certainly, I thank you for everything you've done for me. So thank you so much for sharing the screen with me tonight. And don't go anywhere at home, because up next, intensifying wildfires across the Western states are taking us into uncharted territory as thousands of homes and businesses literally go up in smoke. And you know what? There's no end in sight. You don't want to miss this special report we have. We'll be right back. Okay, a massive heat wave has descended upon the United States with nearly 30 million people likely to see temperatures reach or exceed 100 degrees by the end of the week. Now, temperatures are expected to help fuel Western wildfires, and experts warn that the weather, pat the weather pattern will send dangerous ribbons of smoke as far as the East Coast and the mid-Atlantic states. I saw it in my own neck of the woods right here in D.C. Joining me from Salt Lake City with more is NBC News correspondent Cal Perry. Tiffany, this is the second year in a row that the American West has seen historic fire conditions. We're talking about 88 fires in 13 states, some 20,000 firefighters trying to suppress the situation. But the reality is these are now climate fires. It is almost year round. They are moving and acting differently. The firefighters are telling us that they don't usually see these conditions until September and October, which is frightening. 1.3 million acres burned so far this season, and it is kicking up smoke and bad air all over the United States. You can see here on this map, this is a map that the CDC puts together, how far that smoke is reaching today into the United States. Heavy smoke as far to the east as St. Louis, reaching Washington and New York. We saw this last week. It is a concern from a health perspective. The CDC and doctors are growing more and more concerned. I had a chance to speak to an air quality expert a short time ago. Take a listen. You can see uh, increased incidence of hospital admissions, sort of all cause. You can see increased um, death rates for all causes. You can see asthma exacerbations. You can also see increased use in asthma medications. And then when you put it all together, wildfire uh, smoke is responsible for billions of dollars in increased health care costs. If you look at some of the cities that are worst off today, you'll see an air quality rating in the 400s. That is four times what the federal government says is a healthy level. And this, unfortunately, and we have had this conversation before, is the new reality when it comes to climate. Climate scientists will tell us this, unfortunately, is as good as it's going to get. These fires are going to be year-round. The temperature is only going to rise. Last June in America was the hottest June ever recorded. So that is the concern, that the air quality is only going to get worse, that people really, when they check their weather report, need to start looking at that air quality because it could dictate whether or not you can go outside. Tiffany? Oh, thank you, Cal, and please be safe. Uh, and that's the readout. Get the latest updates on this year's high-stakes election with MSNBC's How to Win 2024 newsletter. When you subscribe, you'll get expert analysis on key races sent straight to your inbox, including articles written by the host of the How to Win podcast, Jennifer Palmieri. Subscribe today at msnbc.com slash win.